Welcome to the LNT Chat Show, and today is quite an unusual event because I actually have four people uh, with me, and the main reason that they're here with me today is because um, they've just written a book um, which is coming out uh, very soon, or will have just have been published, depending on uh, when you're listening to this, um, and it deals with a number of different responses to various uh, issues that came up uh during the um, need to uh, move online and therefore uh, to present materials digitally um and each of them is going to cover one of the the sections of uh, the book that they have so um i'm going to allow each of them to introduce themselves in turn um starting with uh julio julio if you'd like to uh, just tell the audience a little bit about yourself all right thank you roger um yes i'm julio Jimenez. i'm a principal lecturer in English language and academic literacies at the Westminster Center for Education and Teaching Innovation. And I'm one of the editors of the collection. Um, shall I talk about the book now? Or uh, no, I... no, that, that's, that's okay. Well, we'll quickly go through the others. So uh, Katie, if you'd like to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so hello everyone. Um, I'm Katie Mansfield and I'm a senior lecturer um, in academic English at the University of Westminster. Um, I work with Julio, Martin and James in the Centre for Education and Teaching Innovation. Okay, that's lovely. Uh, James? Yep, like everybody else, I'm a lecturer at SETI, um, University of Westminster, um, in academic uh, education and was very pleased to have the chance um, to do this collection that Julio got us started on and I'm very surprised and amazed that we've actually made it all the way through to the end and can be discussing it with you. Okay and and last but definitely not least Mark. Hello um, I'm also a senior lecturer in academic English and academic practice within SETI where I'm involved in quite a range of projects and uh, glad to see this eventually coming to an end. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, well, uh, just for clarification, you're Martin Percy, because um, I, like, I like people to know the, the surnames as well. Um, so uh, we're going to start with uh, Julio because the, the um, information has been broken down into sections for me. Um, but Julio, can you also give us a little bit of an idea of what actually spurred you to um, to think, okay, this is something really that I need to I need to formalise. I mean, particularly with with colleagues in terms of you know producing something that could act as a resource for for people to to look at. Um, sure. Well, you know, in, in conversation with colleagues at Westminster and from other universities in the country and abroad, I realised that we were all using a number of strategies and tools. Uh, to cope with the transition from face-to-face -to, -face to online teaching and learning. So I thought we needed to document those experiences, which, you know, were in a way building up to a body of expertise um, in teaching and learning in higher education during the pandemic. At the same time, I thought, well, those experiences and expertise could be shared with other colleagues nationally and internationally so that we could be better prepared should we be faced with a similar situation in the future. So I discussed the idea with the team, with Martin, Katie, James and Marianne who unfortunately is not here with us. 
uh, mm -hmm. today. Um, and together we developed a proposal, which we sent to Rowledge, and then the volume got commissioned. And that's why we are here. Okay, excellent. And um, I understand that you are going to be talking about uh, responses related to um, how digital learning actually impacted on uh, both teachers and students from a, a sort of you know isolating point of view and and, and yeah. mental and physical well-being point of view can you give us some examples of the kinds of things that uh, that you cover in the book yeah sure um can i just start by saying that the collection is divided into four parts and the first mm -hmm. part was as we said edited by maria angela spinilla who as i said couldn't be with us today and this first part talks about rapid responses to the crisis it's got six chapters narrating different experiences of colleagues from Finland, the UK, Montenegro, Qatar, Sweden, and New Zealand. As you can imagine, the number of practical tips any reader can draw in this session is significant. So I'm going to be referring to those that are common to most chapters. Um, and so I group them into three tips for staff, tips for the pedagogical organization of e-learning and tips for the students. Um, so, so in terms of um, tips for staff and training, as you know, many universities and departments were faced with the issue of having to train their staff, some of whom had probably never experienced online teaching before. So um, some of the tips offered in the volume include, first of all, setting up an effective induction program for staff aiming to develop, among other things, resilience against unexpected events. This, I believe, is the very important first step as it forms the basis for communication and collaboration among staff, which is so important when you're teaching online. Also organizing daily support meetings to address issues with technology um, and for staff to share the successful stories um, and establishing new channels of communication and applications such as Teams or WhatsApp to provide support. And I think these three tips, induction, support and communication are in my view fundamental to the success of any course or program delivered online. Another tip for staff is providing opportunities for them to create a community of practice to share their experience and expertise. And I think this can only happen if induction, support and communication have already been established. Um, Moving on to the pedagogical organization of e-learning, many of the chapters in this first section suggest, for example, encouraging staff to limit the variety of e-tools they use, keeping things as simple and straightforward as possible, especially at the beginning of the course. And I think this will also allow staff and students to become familiar with the new forms of teaching and learning because you know this this was the first time we were faced with this and we were all new to these and most of us were were there any platforms or tools that that seemed to be particularly popular amongst um, all the people that you were talking to yeah the the typical one was teams 
uh, most universities, as you know, uh, were already using Teams, and so many many of the sessions were delivered via Teams. I was um, I was thinking more of um, sort of applications because I I have noticed um, from discussions with with colleagues and and sort of stuff that was been raised at conferences that uh, Padlet. Uh, seem to be to offer a very high degree of flexibility yeah, right. and um, although I'd heard of it I'd always been a little bit wary but I actually now uh, use Padlets and probably wouldn't have done if we hadn't had the remote teaching and people hadn't sort of had to go out and, and explore um, those options. Yeah uh, that, that is one that many many people use and Padlets is, is very flexible that allows you to do many things even surveys among students and and so um, these e-tools, however, uh, you know, there is a plethora of tools over there and what we need to do is to probably avoid the temptation of using them all together in one class. We need to also, when we talk about students, we need to give students the opportunity to become familiar and to experiment with these um, tools, because sometimes we think because they are technologically savvy, then they'll be able to make the most of these learning e-tools. And that's not usually the case, you know. Um, they are very good on their telephones, but that doesn't mean that they are able to take advantage of e-tools and platforms. And e-learning for most of them was also a, a new experience. So, so, you know, it's, it's planning all these pedagogical activities and trying to allow time, uh, keeping in mind that things take longer online than face-to-face and including practical sessions so that, you know, you, you can encourage social, socialization, collaboration and the social construction of knowledge. Um, we all know that you know, the social aspect of learning is very important and it's easier to develop that sense in face-to-face -face situations, but, you know, it takes longer and um, other activities to be able to encourage students to socialize online. Um, and because of sometimes the limitation of the platforms, we were encouraged to turn off the cameras, for example, and that mm -hmm. actually, works against the social aspect because people couldn't see each other couldn't see what was happening and it was all you know blank uh, uh screens that they could see um and and collaboration is another uh theme that emerges very strongly in all of the subjects how to sorry all the chapters how to actually you know, encourage collaboration between teachers, but especially between students. And some of the, the, the tips is, um, include some of the tips include um, adding or setting up assignments that require students to work together and collaborate mm. so to develop these, these sense. Um, I think another important tip that I remember is encouraging physical movement during the lessons to stimulate mind and body. Sometimes we forget, especially online, that um, the attention span tends to be different. And also that, you know, fixing your attention on the computer all the time is more, much more tiring than 
face-to-face uh, -face, um, experience, learning experiences in the classroom. So, um, you know, having breaks from screen time and during the breaks, sharing with students probably some relaxing music or smoothing, soothing pictures of natural landscapes, for example, so that yeah. there is a break from the online activity. So going back to something you said earlier, was there any kind of consensus um, amongst the, the people that you spoke to in terms of um, sort of being able to, to see students? Because there was there was a lot of disagreement uh, amongst colleagues as to uh, what our requirements should be. And I've I tended to go down the route of, um, you know, there are lots of international students who may be having connectivity issues or bandwidth issues. So I wasn't bothered about people necessarily um, being able to be seen on screen in terms of video, although I did ask uh, the students if they could to actually put a, a picture in as their uh, yeah. profile rather than just their initials, because that you know, gives the sense of uh, the person, whereas I had some other colleagues who were really quite insistent that students should, you know, be visible to one another because it's an important part of that communication process. Yeah, um, most, most, as far as I remember, most contributors thought that actually had to be left to the student to decide because, as right. you said, um, you know, there might be other problems. I mean, many people think, well, it all depends how um, confident you feel and lots of international students might not feel confident about having their camera on etc etc but there is also the important issue as you mentioned of connectivity issues that sometimes you need to turn off the camera because it facilitates communication but I think something that you mentioned as well is very important is to build up this um, sort of community of learning where a student's are encouraged, as you said, to, to put up a picture of themselves and probably share a small description of themselves with other students before the course starts so that they know who they are, where they live, where they are. And this can be done either online or you could have, you know, on the platform that you're using, you could have a space, which is the social space where students actually can read about other students, can see videos of other students, what other students like and all that. All this will contribute to creating this, you know, community and, and help with the social aspect of learning. Okay, um, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it's a bit of a, a whistle-stop tour. Um, if we could move <laughs> on to the, the second part of the book, which was about adapting teaching uh, academic skills. Uh, online and uh, and Katie, do you want to take us through uh, some of the things you discovered there? Yeah, sure. So um, I was looking after Luxembourg, Chile, Argentina, Albania, and um, Uzbekistan. So we have our five um, countries represented there. Um, so they they were teaching a range of different courses. So research, um, reading, writing for publication. Um, reading and writing courses and they identified a whole range of problems but mostly um, similar problems so for example setting up the courses I think um, we can talk about an increased workload and I think that's true for anyone who was who was teaching during the pandemic and so 
Luxembourg and Chile identified, for example, the importance of recording videos to use asynchronously um, and combining both, you know, both synchron synchronous and asynchronous um, lessons to get that combination and also to just to make sure that they've got that a decrease in their workloads. Um, at the start, I think a lot of the contributors were very compassionate and very understanding of the situation that their students were in. And so perhaps were overly, um, overly worried. Um, they had perhaps too many channels open to their students. So uh, there was, for example, one of our contributors was saying to email, uh, email when there was an issue or, for example, to write on the blog, to um, send messages to the WhatsApp group and she was included on that WhatsApp group and I think she found that very stressful. So the importance there of not having too many channels open and also uh, giving your students the independence, so having those channels where you're not part of them so that they can then move on and socialise. Um, and setting up, for example, another one to, to decrease the workload, shall we say, um, establishing those clear rules about communication channels and contact hours. Um, it, it was very easy during, for example, the pandemic and easy now for students to contact you at midnight. Um, and if you've got your phone on you, you might you might be tempted to reply. But I think having that kind of rules around when when to contact you and when you're going to be available um, should be something that is known to all. So um, that was one of the main problems. A second problem was with regards to um, the student socialisation aspect and motivation. Um, as I mentioned before, a lot of the contributors were talking about being more per having a more personalised course online and it being more humanistic approach to teaching. So, for example, um, they were asking of pictures or asking for the student to put the camera on to show what their working area was like so that they could see what kind of area they had. Did they, were they on a kitchen table, for example, or did they have a big office? Some of them were actually on their beds. So just understanding where the students are and that made them closer in many ways. Um, so that was one of the one of the tips, but also, uh, for example, just taking that step back and allowing the students and so the lecturers to take a step back and allow their students to um, communicate within with amongst each other, for example, um, in small groups or just, um, for example, if you're putting in, them into a breakout room not being present in the breakout room for some time or popping in, putting your camera on, seeing what they're doing, but then also just being giving them that interaction um, on their own so that the students, again, don't feel that, that you're present there trying to um, see what they're doing all of the time. And also with them working in these small groups, perhaps they um, it, it prevents these kind of awkward interactions um, that we've had, we're all so familiar with. Um, moving on to another problem that was highlighted was obviously the difficulty in mirroring the face-to-face -face, um, environment. 
Um, and we've meant it was mentioned earlier. So to enrich this experience of online, um, a lot of tools were used um, to make it more practical, for example, and more communicative. So lots of the contributors were using Padlet, um, Google Forms or setting up blogs or there were lots of things. Edmondo was uh, was highlighted, Big Blue Button. There were lots of things that people were using um, to the to their advantage. It's it's funny because um, what you were mentioning earlier, I did see as one of the the positives of remote teaching, um, yeah. the fact that there actually was more of an opportunity to communicate with students and them to feel more able to communicate as well. Because when you ask the question in a classroom, instead of you know people kind of glancing around hoping that someone else is going to answer the question, students actually would reply more because as far as you know from their perspective, it was just them and you and all of the answers actually came up at pretty much the same time. So people were were less worried. Students also seem to quite like um, using emojis. Um, exactly. Which I, I found quite interesting. But taking up your, your last point there, um, the biggest problem I had, I, I do a lot of very practical things. Um, so for example, if I would normally use Lego in class, clearly um, <laughs> that's something which is much more difficult to do online um it, were people identifying things because you know padlet and everything else is great but it's still even if you're using images it's still sort of quite two-dimensional and and um did anyone come up with anything that you thought was particularly innovative in terms of how to be more practical when teaching online yeah there was there was it wasn't in my section though but um the czech republic they came up with some really lovely ideas um, I don't know who's who who was talking about who was who's going to be talking about the Czech Republic because they. I'm not sure. Go for it, Katie. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're mine, but go for it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to step on your toes, um, but they had they um, used the oh, correct me, James. What's the what was it called? The window swap. Window swap. Yeah. Oh. Have you heard of the window swap? Absolutely not. No. OK, so it was really interesting. And so you go on, to, go on to the website and it will show you a picture of a window in the world. Um, and so, for example, you could be in Thailand, you could be in China, you could be in the USA. And it just shows you the, what what's happening and it's live. Um, and it shows you what's happening in that area at the time. So it could be raining, it could be sunny, you could be seeing some plants, you could be seeing all sorts of things that so just brings in that other dimension. And I think um, our contributors in the Czech Republic found that 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 made a uh, conversation that really encouraged their students to engage with it. And if they were just like talking about it, it brought, brought them together. Well, interestingly, one of the one of the things that I found, like, um, I guess in, in a normal face to face setting, you, you know, you, you're in a seminar, you'll be stood at the front having you know, prepped the slides or whatever it is you're going to be doing and the students will file in and then once They've, they've kind of filed in, you you crack on with it. Whereas online, I'm very conscious of the fact that I wanted them to, to know that they were in the room, even though, you know, there was that remote circumstance. So I used to play uh, music at the beginning so that, that when they came in, if nothing else, there was some music going on, they'd, they'd see a title slide. And that was when I was having conversations with people. Um, and that's one of the things that we've actually carried forwards on the basis of suggestions from colleagues in other institutions where they've said oh yeah you know I do that in the practical classroom and actually what I do is say to the students okay well this was my piece of music if you'd like next week it to be your piece of music you know just send me a suggestion and we'll actually make a playlist 
from the students in the room. So I, I like that idea of looking out the window and, and people feeling a little bit more uh, connected. Um, yeah. Also if, asking about smells and things. What do you think it smells like? They're just getting bringing that other element in there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that's really important. And, you know, I've, I there were lots of positives, I thought, out of uh, remote learning, but it, it was really frustrating not having that kind of almost physical interaction um, with students. Definitely. But I think that, for example, just acknowledging the fact that it was difficult um, and also acknowledging the fact that, you know, there are they're going to be connection issues or, for example, that you're going to have a delivery. <laughs> um, just acknowledging that and just being clear from the start. I think that that made maybe the gap between lecturer and student perhaps narrower. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioning the, the delivery and obviously the one person who was on camera was myself, as all of you know, well, most of the colleagues would have been. And we did get feedback from students saying, oh, we really liked seeing, you know, what was behind you um, and seeing where you were. Um, and we felt more of a connection with you because you weren't just some person standing up in front of a, of a teaching space. It was also um, noticeable that at the end of sessions, you know, normally I, I finish a session and, and maybe a student come over and have a chat, but the students file out and they go off and do whatever else it is they were doing. But the vast majority of students online would actually say thank you or, or goodbye or, you know, put a little emoji on before they left the room. And I, I thought that was really quite sweet. And in some ways, I say, I, you know, I really appreciate the, the isolationism um, of it. But in other ways, actually, I, I think it, it kind of almost brought us closer as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that um, something that we wanted to mirror, I think a lot of the contributors and ourselves wanted to mirror was trying to ensure that we get that same quality of teaching and learning. And I think one of the ways was, um, as you say, just bringing yourself closer, but also reflecting um, on on your own practice, but also getting the students, to, you know, asking the students, how did you find that? Um, would you do things differently? Because that because of there there was a, sh a narrow gap, and you felt that you had that you could play with that, and um, and that you were happy, as you say, you were learning from each other. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, thank you so much for that, um, uh, James. If we could move on to your section, um, and I believe uh, you were looking at collaboration and online learning communities. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, it's a it's a topic that's already come up. And one of the, the distinctive things about um, this section is, and reflected in the way it's organized, it, it starts um, really at, at university and institution level and above, addressing the kinds of changes that needed to be made in order to affect the successful transitions online in response to the pandemic and everything else. Um, it, it moves down through uh, responses at, at course design level, um, and actually trying to shift whole courses. And in the second chapter, there's there's actually five authors um, from five different countries, and they they all came together to to reorganize everything that they planned to do for the next two years in a few weeks and to try and get a successful online version going on. Um, I, I don't think it's been mentioned yet, but we we actually have, um, I think at last count, it was thirty nine contributors in total. Um, from at least 22 countries. So, you know, the way they 
um, I mean, it, it reflects, you know, the nature of our of our business, I guess, but also the way that they also came together and successfully enacted these things. Um, it was that was also part of a um, chapter from Ecuador that was covered, um, redoing a, an online writing course uh, for postgraduates and and instructors as well. And um, all the way down through, I, I think Katie mentioned Czech Republic. So that was about, um, you know, again, redoing a course, course level, and then what that meant in the classroom. Um, right down to, um, I, I probably shouldn't say it, but definitely one of my favourite chapters um, from New Zealand, um, which was all about how to try and re-encourage social um, engagement um, back in the classroom. Um, so it was, yeah, like all of the, what was necessary essentially, um, working with others, but, you know, again, all the way up to institution level and beyond to make sure that these things were okay. Um, yeah, so that's that's what it, it kind of uh, covers. As, as far as practical tips goes, I, I guess starting from the, the top again, the USA chapter and what was necessary in order to make the changes um, that were necessary. Um, really, I, I guess in relation to, you know, planning even, you know, bureaucracy and government requirements and everything else, it was really about this idea of, of changing people's attitudes and understanding and trying to work with them to make sure that those those changes could be brought in um, and something effective could be made for students. And I, I guess looking downwards, something that's been touched on already, a very, very common theme for many chapters in the book is this idea of, I guess, at the simplest levels, um, asynchronous learning. Um, something, you know, there was a real emphasis about it. You know, my impression now looking back on it, it wasn't really about, you know, how do we convert uh, this on this face to face version into online? It's really how do we now actually create something successfully asynchronously as our basis and foundation to work from now in this online environment. And I, I don't know if it's um, if it's cheating, but if I if I could just maybe share um, one little quote um, from one of the chapters that was from the, the five different authors all working around Europe together. Um, so what was it? Slovakia, uh, Czech Republic, Hungary, um, I must have forgotten somebody else as well. Oh, Netherlands. Yeah, um, they said it was the balance and manifestation of the teaching, the materials that were altered um, rather than actually the, the classes or the materials that went into the classes themselves. For instance, we placed some preparatory materials and tasks online, prioritizing a flipped classroom approach. This provided more time for collaborative activities and question and answers. We also discarded time-consuming and organization-heavy activities. We prioritize oral peer feedback over instructor feedback. So it was just an example for me how it wasn't that there was necessarily a hugely radical shift, but, but people quickly came to realize how to best utilize the tools that they now had to work with. It's, it's interesting because you've actually mentioned flipped classrooms there, and I, I've been using flipped classrooms for well over 10 years. Um, as sort of my standard operating pr procedure. And I've been very lucky in being um, supported in my previous institution and certainly when I first started at my current one. Um, and so the idea of the asynchronous material, to, to me, you, you know, that's something I'd been doing for some time. And the fact that it, it did allow you then to focus more on the, the student voice, um, it, it, I, I think was a real benefit. 
the irony is, certainly in my own institution, that since we have now transitioned back to face to face, there is an expectation that nothing will be provided asynchronously. Because students need to be, you know, one of the big things students complained about was, was the classroom. Do you get any sense either for yourself and your own colleagues or, or from uh, talking to the people uh, for the for the book that actually that idea of what you can do asynchronously and what that then allows you to do in a in a sort of face to face setting, even if it's online, is that something that other institutions or other countries you think have decided actually, you know what, that's a positive and we will take that forward? That's that's definitely something I, I took from the collection as a whole. I don't I don't know what the others think, but I think that was I definitely I think as you were asking, you know, more of a positive. So I, I think I mean, for me, there's you know, it's it's a slight irony as well in that we are, you know, asking people to be independent a lot of the time and to work autonomously. But online, we, we really do have to kind of provide more of a foundation in order for that to happen. So, you know, going back to the kind of constructive suggestions idea, um, like for the for, for David's New Zealand chapter, for example, you know, a lot of that was about not necessarily just providing um, that that foundation level for them to then work from. It was about really tailoring it to them. And then we kind of, you know, get back to those added advantages for the engagement and the social inclusion and everything else. So it wasn't it, it was not just having it, but it was about really using it as effectively as possible as well. Yeah. But in general, def definitely a positive. And I mean, it, it's it's really, I suppose, in many ways about giving people a head start. So why not? Do you think um, from from the sort of uh, research that you did and the, and the feedback that you have? Do you think that the online environment um, either made it easier or encouraged there to be more uh, collaboration or did, did it not make a difference? I'm, I'm thinking in particular for myself personally, um, when we first started um, online and we were actually using uh, Blackboard Collaborate and then moved over to Teams, mm -hmm. uh, but we, it was suggested to us that in order that we could try and get the students to focus on each other, that we use the breakout rooms. Um, and then I dropped into each of the breakout rooms. And after about three weeks, I stopped using breakout rooms because when you get students to work in groups in class, you can see all of the groups. They can see you. You can hear what they're saying. You can you can mm -hmm. move around according to need more than anything else, as opposed yeah. to just going from A to B to C. Um, and for me personally, that really didn't seem to work online. And I don't yeah. know whether that was that's my failing in not finding a, an appropriate technique or, or whether it was you know something else it, it, effectively we i mean i was quite lucky because the seminars were relatively small but it still felt easier to to have everyone yeah, together. yeah, yeah. sure um, i i mean obviously it depends massively on the the class and the, the setting and the context but i think one thing they did take from the chapters was really it was about providing the opportunities it isn't necessarily that they're always going to be effectively used but it's about providing those chances and I, I think maybe, you know, more so when it's it's online because it doesn't necessarily happen accidentally. There has to be that kind of forethought given to setting it up, making people are aware of how it could be used and giving them that opportunity. So, you know, another example from, um, you know, the collaborators from a, from around Europe was um, how they kind of adjusted timings for the class just to set aside some time and opportunity for that to happen if people chose to use it. 
So it, it wasn't necessarily like always kind of top down saying that people had to do it in a certain way. But it was just a kind of reminder and, and giving that opportunity. And that, that seemed to work for them anyway. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually, that I think had we had and no one would have wished this on the world, but had we had a couple more years of needing to work remotely, I think people would have learned a lot of, um, you know, the techniques that were required and, and benefited from that being able to practice in, in Israel. Sure. It didn't feel like we were just getting into the swing of it when we moved back into the classroom. And, and my only disappointment, which is one of the reasons why I'm interested in, in the book, actually, is the number of things, positive things that actually did come out that I'm concerned that we are going to lose when we go back to face to face because uh, and again, I'm, I'm probably not going to do myself any favours here, particularly the powers that be, rather than the people who are standing in front of people, um, decide that, no, the old system worked much better. It was much e much more e easy to control and say, well, this is what we're doing. Um, and I, I am worried that, that some of that will be lost. So I think, you know, the, the book in particular yeah, yeah. is a really good repository for the positive things that we, came we hope so and i think you've, you've hit on two really um important themes i mean i you know something that emerged from the book very strongly was you know this idea by the end of it okay now we've got the hang of it but then there was some kind of you know reversal and you know change then had to happen again but but i think also maybe even more so was was this idea that it doesn't have to be one or the other you know there are there are positives and and things to overcome whether it be face to face or online and they can be shared and addressed you know it doesn't necessarily they don't need to be in their own little box yeah so you know that kind of asynchronous element can be um enhanced uh face to face you know the the kinds of things that you would expect to happen face to face you can make some accommodation for online if there's some forethought and willingness from those involved yeah Thank you so much for that bit, James. Uh, I um, press on uh, so that we, Martin's got plenty of time to talk to us. And, and Martin, you're actually going to be looking at um, online assessment. Yes, there were five chapters involved in this from Uzbekistan, Thailand, Australia, um, China and the US. Uh, I, we had some very innovative ideas here. Um, some of it was inspired by the transformations made by the Common European Framework of Referencing for Language, which changed the descriptors from the discrete skills of reading, listening, speaking and writing to um, reception, interaction, production and mediation. And this has had an impact in terms of the application of connectivism, um, a learning theory which is grounded in social constructivism. It's arguably a, a pedagogical approach and the, the chapter dealt with this as a pedagogical approach. Um, uh, this, need, this takes into account that you we are exploiting digital language enhancements tools in order to uh, to produce texts. And it brings into question the ethical concerns related to uh, literacy brokering, uh, which could be defined as the involvement of people beside the named authors in the production of text. So this might be having essays being proofread by friends and family, employing ghostwriters, paying fees to online proofreading companies. Um, obviously, there's, there's, it's a gray area. Uh, and it's uh, individuals have different perceptions of what is acceptable ethically and what is not. Um, but constructivism um, looks at technology, not just as a tool, but as an intrinsic part 
of the learning process. It focuses on language use and places interaction at the center of the learning process. Um, so um, uh, knowledge today is, is distributed across networks, needless to say, and uh, learning is about connecting. So this is very significant in higher education. The students are graded on their ability to mediate and apply concepts and theories. Um, it has been suggested that a return may well be regressive, something that you just touched upon. Uh, one of the practices which does apply to um, learning within the modern technological um, advantage, uh, the, the modern technological um, situation. And uh, to regress, it could be regressive to return to simply a pen and paper physical learning environments. Uh, Needless to say, we practice blended learning, so there's plenty of uh, opportunities to develop there. Um, so uh, many contributors acknowledged that a higher proportion of their assessments are now formative rather than summative, uh, which is necessitating a greater emphasis on developing fluency in component skills and process skills. Um, component skills in our field typically being, for example, um, the uh, identifying key arguments, recognizing the stance of the writer, how that can be challenged, um, articulating different perspectives and uh, recommending a solution. Um, these are all factors which, which are quite significant to connectivism because it exposes learners to a diversity of opinions or stances and is therefore perceived to support a deep approach to learning. Um, in terms of uh, this issue in relation to the students, there is a problem that the students tend to see um, formative, sorry, summative assessment as a high status, uh, a high stakes test, whereas they don't value formative assessment so much. So shifting perhaps emphasis, the emphasis may involve shifting values and recognizing how this can promote autonomy. Um, shifting the focus of the research essay to reward process as well as a product um, in operating within this context, um, that needs to be taken into account too. Learners can be a bit fixated by outcomes rather than conceptual growth. And this again is something which needs to be addressed and where actually digital technologies could, could be at all in, in aiding that, well, not simply at all, but a part of the process of aiding this. Was there anything that actually came out of the research, though, um, regarding, um, in, in particular, I, I, I am particularly interested in, in um, formative assessment, um, mm -hmm. especially since, you know, there, there have there has been a lot of calls for the idea of, um, uh, what is it, um, assessment for learning as opposed to assessment of learning. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I totally get um, the the point that you made about needing to shift students' values so that they see the value of that. So my argument has always been, well, if you do this, particularly if you don't do it very well, and then you learn, oh, okay, so I should have done this. When you come to do the summative assessment, you're not going to make that mistake and therefore hopefully will actually end up with a better grade. So the point of formative yeah, assessment yeah. is actually that it helps you to get a better grade at the end. But beyond actually trying to explain that to the students, um, I, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm still looking around for people who've gone, ah, oh, well, this is a really good way of making sure that that they pick up. Yeah, I think emphasizing that it's a, a, a transferable 
they are transferable skills and they can be used and see how these applications could be used to assist them in the assessments they're doing in other modules and possibly in terms of employability as well where you're working in teams um, towards the finalization of the project and what how are you going to go through the successive stages in order to achieve those ends how can these ideas be applied and I think that's particularly important in terms of process skills. If you look, many of my students in feedback have, have often mentioned that they'd never thought of brainstorming or evaluating before taking notes. So, um, and actually having a, a dialogic approach to note taking to actually make their own comments on how their learning is progressing through that, organizing knowledge, content, planning, drafting. Um, to recognize how that transforms your way of seeing things. I always tell my students that if you have the same stance towards this contentious issue that you're going to construct a, a text on at the end of the process and you haven't learned anything, it has to transform your stance. And I often find students, particularly undergraduates, have a very black and white view of things and tend to see contentious issues as false dichotomies and you can challenge those dichotomies by pointing out that this is a lot more nuanced and that is part of the learning process but you have to go through those processes in order to reach that i, I think that's important i mean a number of the uh, contributors mentioned that they did experience problems with a lack of face-to-face -face communication um group interaction could, was less spontaneous than it would be in the physical learning environment and how do you act? I mean, I personally find that going around between the groups and uh, commenting on what's being said and getting involved helps them to get involved. And once they've begun to get involved a bit more, I move on to the next group. Um, collaborative learning and scaffolding can also be slightly problematic. I mean, it depends how far you take uh, digital technologies um, in, in terms of the classroom, in terms of the learning environment, I think, really. Uh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm conscious of time moving on, so I, I just want to say uh, thank you for, for going over the assessment part uh, for us. Um, but I want to now just invite anybody uh, who, whilst either talking or listening to the other uh, contributors, uh, has remembered something that they thought, actually, that, that's one of the things that I really wanted to highlight um, from the production of the, the work. So is there anybody you'd like to to chip in with any last thoughts. The moment at which I get nothing but dead air. Uh, I just wanted, if I may, Roger, say something that probably closes the, the discussion and that's not my, my intention, but with the aim of capitalizing on what we have learned from teaching online during the pandemic, as you mentioned before, uh, the volume the volume closes with a chapter that summarizes the main tips offered by the contributors, providing in this way a list of strategies for remote teaching for now and for the future. And I think um, that sort of summarizes the the essence of the volume to to leave a legacy that we can use now and in the future. Okay, so the the book is being published. Um, I believe at the end of this month, and just in case that's uh, September 2022, uh, is there an intention to continue with the research or, or will this, do you think this will be it? Or are you hoping that, you know, maybe you're going to actually take this out to a wider audience through conferences? I think it might be interesting to look at the long-term implications of the experience of teaching online. 
Um, I think one of the implications is in the interest in, in, in terms of diversity and inclusion is accessibility. Do, do the actual learn, do the learners actually have the skills to use the online uh, platforms that we're expecting them to learn? Do they have accessibility? Uh, I've heard of countless cases in the UK where children were undertaking lesson via a mobile phone that they were sharing. Um, so I think that's something that needs to be addressed if, if this is to continue. In it. Okay. Uh, would anyone else like to, to offer any last comments before I wrap it up? Okay, I will take your silence as uh, having hopefully covered uh, everything that you wanted to do. Um, so it just really remains for me to say uh, thank you very much to uh, Martin, James, Julio and Katie. Uh, so thank you all very much for your time thank today. Thank you, Roger. Would, would you like a 20% uh, discount flyer on purchasing a copy? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm quite happy to pay the full full amount. Thanks, Thanks very much. Right. Nice thank to meet you. So you. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.